Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So, <clears throat> what I want to do tonight is um, uh, just take a tour, you might say, <coughs> of the Buddha's teachings. Just so that, uh, generally speaking, we're, we're sort of clear um, about what we, if you decide to do it, what you might be taking refuge in. And I want to try and make it as broad as possible so that um, anybody uh, with even an attraction towards the Dharma would feel quite happy taking the refuges and precepts. Um, if we begin with the Buddha himself. <clears throat> so the Buddha, like all uh, leaders, stands as an archetype and an exemplar. As an archetype, the Buddha is within us. It's a pattern of behavior and understanding. You can uh, contact that by every time you want to do something and ask yourself, would the Buddha do this? You'll normally get a very clear answer. That, what we call uh, partly our conscience, partly our ideals, uh, obviously need not be true. Our, our conscience can be too tight, can be too, uh, can be too restricted, can be judgmental, but also conscience can be very loose and um, uh, let you do things on the nod, as it were. Um, ideals can be uh, too idealistic, not grounded in, uh, in the way uh, that, that it is, often we'll try to impose, I uh, will let modern technology pass over. <laughs> often we try to impose absolute laws on a relative universe. So even the first precept, not to harm any living being, becomes virtually impossible when you're living in a world like ours. So this archetype, though, that I'm really referring to is the life of the Buddha. And you'll see it copied not only within uh, Buddhist history, with all the uh, Buddhist saints, the Arahats, but you see it in other religions too. And it's all about it's all about letting go of the world letting go of the world now whenever you say that letting go of the world renouncing the world a great fear arises in people <laughs> it's a horrible feeling not to be able to have cornflakes anymore <laughs> not to be able to watch your favourite soap so, uh, first of all, before I go into it, remember that 
one renounces, one lets go of the world at one's own pace. There's no, there's no time put on this process. One, one, as it were, moves along the spiritual path at one's own pace, in one's own time. Yeah. So here we have the Buddha, um, then Siddhartha Gautama. The tribe was Gautama, or his family name was Gautama. His tribe was the Sakyas. And somewhere in his 20s, uh, as it happens to most people, well, I don't know, to a lot of people, should we say, there's a little existential crisis arises. And it's put in that mythological way that he's out hunting, he's lived a good life, he's, he's been given everything he wants to, uh, wants to have. He's had, in other words, a happy childhood. That's how it comes across. A very happy childhood and a very happy teenager. Not rebellious and all that other stuff. And he's out there riding and he comes across these four archetypal figures. Um, a sick person, a very sick person, a very old person, a dead person, a corpse, and this ascetic sitting under a tree. And each time, as the myth goes, it's a shock to see it. As it might be a shock for us to actually see somebody who's very sick for the first time. Or, for most of us who haven't seen a corpse, to actually see a dead body. And if you haven't, then it may come as quite a shock because there's something lifeless about a dead body <laughs> which we're not used to in bodies. And you may find that you actually want to make the face move. You want to give it life. It's a very peculiar thing to happen. So these four, th these four things, the sickness, old age, death, and this sitting monk, shake him. And the questions he asks is, what is it? Because he's a bit ignorant about these things. And when he's told, it's the next question which drives, as it were, the bullet home. Will this happen to me? Will I be sick, grow old and die? And this obviously sends him into some sort of downwards, uh, downward spiral. And he probably had lots of discussions with his wife and, and everybody else about what to do and how he felt, a sense of alienation, a sense of meaninglessness to life. If all, your, if all your attention goes towards the end of life, towards death, then uh, life itself feels purposeless. Well, where is it going? You know, why am I making this effort at uh, you know, my work and relationships and all that when it's all just going to end up in this hole in the ground? So that sort of, those sorts of feelings that come when we turn around and see where our lives are going to, in terms of this life form, uh, you know, shake us. That's the crisis. That's the existential crisis. There's a sense of absurdity about life. You know, why am I conscious? What's the purpose of that? See? But there is this last image of this ascetic sitting under a tree. And it's that which, as it were, raises a certain hope in his heart. See? A certain, a certain possibility that there might, be, there might be an escape from sickness, old age and death. 
Now, uh, such is the existential crisis in him that he has to, he has to leave home. He has to go and search. And it was something that wasn't uncommon in those days. A bit like the hippie movement in the, in the 60s. People left their, their uh, comfortable middle-class homes and treasured across to India. So that sort of uh, momentum was already there in society. There were lots of ascetics around, lots of teachers. So he wasn't doing anything extraordinary. He was simply joining what was happening at the time. The times were also changing. It was a time of um, general social discomfort. The old order, which had been these different tribes who ruled each, who ruled themselves through committees, uh, was changing from monarchical systems, and there were, you know, little battles going on. So within that uh, a general change within society, away from a pastoral to a to a city type of of, um, of culture, uh, there's also this business going on of a spiritual search. Now, if you think about your own passage to here, I'd be very surprised if, what, uh, if, if it wasn't some sort of crisis, some sort of mild concern that uh, brought you to meditation. It's very rare for a person to come to meditation just on an intellectual uh, basis. See, what drives you to the practice is suffering. And that's, that's what the Buddha says. He says it's suffering that starts you looking for the end of suffering. If you're not suffering, what the hell would you want to worry about the end of suffering for? <laughs> it's as simple as that. So this, uh, this process whereby we, we hit this wall into li- in life, you see, is common to us all. For him, it hit him in his 20s. For others, it's their 40s. And for others, it's, you know, it's when they're told they've got six weeks to live. But at some point... <laughs> At some point, that, that existential truth, uh, you know, has to strike home. So you can see that that's archetypal. That happens to all human beings. And then there comes this search. Now, I'd be very surprised if anybody in this room uh, hasn't been searching other traditions, other methodologies, other types of Buddhisms. So it's the same with him. Off he goes, and he goes to these various teachers. And each system uh, will always tell you that they've got it, that they understand where it's all at, and, uh, and once you've got there, well, there's nowhere else to go. So having worked with these uh, two teachers especially, who helped him to manufacture mental states. Now, these are what we call these jhanas, or absorptions, are uh, mental states that we can create ourselves within ourselves. The liberation that comes from, be able, from being able to create your own mental state without any help from outside is the very fact that you can do it within yourself. So if you think about the happy states that, that you might experience, uh, I would say that for the most part you'll find them dependent on something outside you. It's either a good film or a friend or wandering around the country, it's always something out there which is engendering something in here. Now, so long as that happiness in here is dependent on something out there, it's very fragile. Eh? You know, you have an earthquake and that's the end of your happiness in, <laughs> in the countryside. The TV blows up and what are you going to do? 
So it's a case of recognizing that that sort of happiness, dependent on anything out there, food included, of course, is fragile, is dependent on that. These ecstatic states, which were taught by the Buddha, he didn't, uh, he didn't deny their, their, um, their worthiness because they do develop um, you know, uh, conditionings within us, beautiful conditionings. They have the advantage of uh, being able to be generated by oneself within oneself. Now, uh, one of the more common ones is loving-kindness. So, just by sitting quietly and repeating in your heart a certain volition, may all beings be happy. And it's done, remember, uh, because I just, this is just an aside, when you're doing loving kindness, you're not doing it in order to feel happy. <laughs> that, that, that corrupts the whole process. You're actually, you're actually trying to give your good wishes to whoever it is you're, you're, you're offering them to. So it's an outward process, you see, it's an outward process. The fact that happiness arises in your heart is to be considered a merit, you see. If you consider that that's, that's why you're doing it, and then you start offering loving kindness and it doesn't come, then of course you get very disappointed and upset and frustrated. So when we're offering loving kindness, we're doing it for the benefit of others. We're actually trying to share what we have with other people or other beings. So just by repeating that, you see, we can build up these beautiful feelings within ourselves. And then these, these, these lovely feelings and attitudes within ourselves are under our control, as it were. If, if you develop these things to a high level, which I never have, by the way, in case you have wrong ideas, uh, then, <laughs> then you can see people can very, very easily become quite ecstatic. And... Um, uh, what he discovered, of course, by that sort of practice was that it also passed away. Yeah? He also woke up in the morning still feeling depressed. So there was no... Although it was, although it was very different from the joys that one might get from the world out there, it was still dependent. It was still dependent on something which arises and passes away. And it was on that basis that he left his teachers. Then he went into a form of uh, practice which is a self-mortification. And the understanding uh, at that time was that if, you, that if you think about it, all, everything is dependent on the body. You know, all our emotions are felt in the body. Uh, all, the, all the pleasures we feel are in the body. All the pain is in the body. Everything is sort of uh, grounded in, in our physical nature. If we, could, if we could somehow reduce that or bring it down to um, some sort of steady, steady state, then that would have an effect of quietening the mind. Now, those of you uh, who've done, I'm sure all of you have done a 10-day fast, know that after, <laughs> that after three days of horror, when all the gunge comes out, that the mind lifts and you feel very light and very, very e at ease and, and, and it even uh, sort of uh, helps the emotional life to sort of cool down. So there was that sort of understanding which he himself took to uh, a great uh, length. But he said it was just painful and unprofitable. <laughs> so, so he gave that up. Now... Um, 
That's very archetypal throughout all religions, isn't it? If you look at the mystics of all religions, they all talk about these wonderful ecstasies and they all do these ascetic practices. I'm thinking, for instance, of the early Christian uh, desert fathers, some of them, who uh, you know, sat on top of pillars or held their hand up till it withered. Uh, still happens, actually, in India. Um, so there's, those un- there's that sort of attempt in some way to go beyond the human being, go beyond, beyond the human being as we experience it in ordinary daily life, either through a mental effort or through a physical effort. Yeah? Both of these uh, the Buddha found wanting. Um, whatever, whatever peace or joy or steadiness he achieved, um, it always came to an end. It always finished. And um, it was in that sort of moment of desperation that he, he leaves his companions. He leaves his companions. And he, he, goes, you know, he, go, he, walks, he walks off and he has a good think about things. There's always going to be, I think, in our spiritual life, those little moments where we feel that sense of loss, where we don't know where we're going. It can come in little spurts of, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? You know? Or it can come as a true spiritual crisis, a feeling of, of not going anywhere. You know, like you practice for, you know, uh, 50 years and, and you're, still, you're still, you know, getting angry and, and, and banging the fridge door and, and, <laughs> and swearing at people. And there's that, there's that sort of uh, despair about one's practice. So as I warned last night, you know, to take, not to put any expectation at all as to where we're actually uh, trying to get to, uh, that, that, that uh, can often be a false, a false idea of what, we're, of, uh, of what we can attain. So these little crises that come up in the spiritual life of uh, being confused, uh, of not knowing where we are, of not feeling we're getting anywhere, so, you know, be, uh, all we have to do is be careful that we don't thereby let go of a spiritual path. It doesn't matter which we're on, but that we just keep gently moving forward. One of the, um, you know, just talking as a monastic, one of the, one of the pitfalls of the monastic life is, is this business around the rule. So the Buddha you'll find that all these monastic orders have rules, thousands of them, millions of rules. <laughs> and it's basically, if you want to live with somebody, you've got to make rules. I mean, just think about yourself. If, any, if you live with somebody, you have rules, right? You go to bed at a certain time, you don't make that sort of noise, and you keep your TV down, all that sort of stuff. And if you, if you, don't, um, uh, if you don't live with someone, and somebody comes to your house and starts washing the pots, you get very angry because you don't wash the pots like that. You've got to do it this way. <laughs> So you see, without you knowing it, you've got all these little rules and regulations, you see. They're just not written up as a codex. So the Buddha, after about 20 years, had to start writing up, uh, had to uh, start making these rules because uh, monks and nuns weren't behaving as they ought to behave. And uh, he then said that what he left, what he left was the Dharma, his teachings, and the Vinaya, the rule. And you can include in that, of course, all the... uh, rules and guidelines that he gives for lay people. Now, in the monastic life it may be, I mean I know this as a, as a specific example, that somebody tries very hard, they're working extraordinarily hard at their meditation, 
And after one, two, in this case about five years, like nothing's happening. I mean, nothing. <laughs> it's, just, it's just pain all the way, you know. And so this particular uh, monk begins to recollect, begins to think about the situation and becomes convinced that what's actually stopping the forward movement of his spiritual life is he's not keeping the rule properly. So ethics, remember, in Buddhism, ethics for the Buddha's teaching is uh, part and parcel with wisdom. You can't have, you can't be wise and then go and shoplift. It just, it just jars. <laughs> you can't do it. You see, so wisdom and virtue always come together. The more wise we are, the more virtuous we are. The more virtuous we are, the more wise we become. So these two sort of follow each other along the path. So if, not, if uh, in this particular case, this person decided that the reason he wasn't moving forward is because he wasn't actually following the Vinaya strictly. So he went off and he studied the Vinaya and he came to the conclusion that this robe, the one I'm wearing here, is wrong. This, this is not how it should be. In, in the Buddha's day, it was like a little cape that you put over the top of your body whenever you went into a, um, a town or a city or whatever people were. But generally speaking, out in the forest, you didn't wear that at all. You just wore the lower robe. So uh, he went along to see a very famous monk. And the monk agreed with him that, in fact, the measurements were wrong. Then he said, I don't know whether you've seen these bowls that Buddhist monks have, they're sort of big things, yeah? Uh, he, uh, he decided that that was the wrong, um, the wrong uh, uh, volume, it had, uh, the wrong capacity. It had to be smaller, it had to fit under a bed, it was only be a cubit high, you see. Uh, just as a little aside, I was in India once and there was this <laughs> Jain monk in front of me. And uh, we were lining up for food. And his bowl was about ooh, half the size of that. And I was standing behind him with this huge bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said to him, I said, oh, I said, uh, Venerable, I said, um, your bowl is very small. And he turned around and he said, this is the size of my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I then went into this big explanation about how we keep our clothes in the bowl and we have to use it for luggage or my <laughs> So anyway, this, uh, um, this particular monk then turned up at a ceremony with a natty little piece of cloth around his neck and a biscuit tin. And uh, it just didn't go down well at all. <laughs> And what was happening was that he was becoming completely, uh, completely involved and uh, completely obsessed with these little rules, with these little rules, you know, a real obsession about it. And thinking that he was thereby becoming purer, actually his mind was becoming so obsessed, it was becoming full of guilt and self-judgment. And I mean, he was, well, eventually he drove himself out of the order. He left. So, <clears throat> this business of uh, the virtue and the wisdom, you know, coming together uh, is something that the Buddha himself uh, was very keen on actually teaching. So now, the Buddha gets to the point where he feels that all the practice he's done has got him nowhere, and he leaves. He leaves his companions. 
And uh, I'm sure you know the story, sitting by the roadside, and Sujata comes with a, a little bowl of rice pudding, which, of course, is enormously liberating. And he takes a little bit, and something within him uh, is revived, and he has that memory, the memory of being a child watching his father doing a ploughing ceremony. Now, all we have to do is go back to, you know, just, just observe children, especially, you know, around about the age of three, four, three, four or five. And you can see that their ability just to watch is, is just, it's natural to them because they don't have the language, they don't have the concepts. And if you catch, I used to have a lovely picture, I've not brought it with me. If you catch a child looking at something, you'll see the eyes are just, are just staring. They're just absolutely still on the object. The jaws completely relapse, the mouth's open, and the parent always says, shut your mouth, you look gormless. <laughs> and this jaw, you see, is connected with thought. The tongue relaxes. So that there's no thought going on. Just for that little moment when the child's actually seeing something for the first time, there's that total receptiveness. Total receptiveness. Hmm? And that's what uh, he remembers. He remembers that moment. And um, when he goes, uh, that, that, as it were, lifts his spirit and it gives him something to work on. Up until now, he's been developing mental states. This is a level of consciousness. Right? So here we have to make a very clear distinction between mental states and levels of consciousness. So a mental state is, for instance, depression. We all know that one. Joy. It's, it's the fullness of, an, uh, of a particular experience. It'll have thought, it'll have emotions, it'll have some sort of physical feelings. The whole of it we can call a mental state. If you, uh, if you now just, just feel yourself, just know yourself now, that is your mental state. Now, a level of consciousness is something different. It's about the way we relate to life. So now, talking about the child, um, something happens around about the age of seven, which is, um, shall we say, crucial for the spiritual path. Two things. First of all, the moral law comes in. The child understands right and wrong. Remember the, the myth of uh, the Garden of Eden? eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Hmm? So there's that knowledge about, about the virtuous life comes in, about what is not virtuous, what is unskillful, what is unwholesome, and what is virtuous. Hmm? That's, a, that's a very different relationship to life. I, I, I'm told, uh, you know, when you read the books, that a child can definitely feel shame very early on, three years old, even earlier. But guilt doesn't come till... Till this, till this idea arises about right and wrong. The other thing that happens to our consciousness at that stage is that everything has to be reality tested. So up until then, there's absolutely no problem for the child that Father Christmas comes down the chimney, <laughs> even if you haven't got one. They, they, I mean, it's just, it's just part, and par part and parcel of that child's mind to live in that make-believe world. And it's just, it's just part of, that, of the way that, that they cannot distinguish their own thoughts from what's out there. So, moving towards the age of seven, of course, suddenly this, this reality testing comes. And the world changes. The world changes. 
the next few stages, well, we know teenage, puberty, it's a horrible time, puberty, <laughs> the world definitely changes. And then there are things like the midlife crisis, all that sort of stuff. And they're all points in our lives when our understanding of the world is, is turning, it's changing. Now, all the Buddha's doing through his practice, through his teaching, is taking that turning to the ultimate point. It's a point where uh, there's a relationship to life, which means this body. You know, when the Buddha talks about the Four Noble Truths, he often phrases it as um, loku. So it's dukkha, dukkha, niroda loku. There is suffering in this world, and there is an end to suffering in this world. But when he uses the word loku, he, he's not talking about the world out there, he's talking about this world, the five aggregates, as they know, yeah? the five candors. So uh, this idea of uh, the liberation is, some, is something to do with a change in the way we relate to the world that we are experiencing now. Hmm? So consider... Uh, nobody I think would deny the fact that this room exists uh, using that word very loosely on its own so if we all leave this building and go somewhere else uh, this will remain we don't believe it will disappear right? on the other hand uh, objectively speaking um, this room has no objective existence for us Every one of us here has a different relationship to this room, has a different uh, experience of this room. There's no one room. Yeah? We're, we're, we're all living, whether we like it or not, in parallel universes. How we communicate is a mystery. <laughs> How we can actually share what we experience is, is truly magical. So <clears throat> here I am, you see, with this consciousness, this knowing this ability to understand and how does it feed itself but through the senses so I'm completely dependent on my body if I lose my hearing I've, lo I've lost as it's put in the scriptures an avenue of experience an ayatana a sphere of experience disappears for me so that's one one world that I lose if I lose my sight it's one world that I lose and everything I, I am as a human being is dependent on the body itself and how it receives information. Now, when we talk about the process of liberation, we're talking about a change in our attitude to that world. Yeah? Not the world out there, but to that world. For instance, even when I hear about atrocities on the television, even when I see uh, atrocities on television, for instance, um, how can I relate to that you see within me within me that, that relationship that I have to what I see is totally manufactured by me all the TV is giving me is images isn't it hmm? what I see what I make of it and how I react to it and how I respond to it is totally dependent upon me inside myself now uh, this leads this leads uh, this lead this led the Buddha to uh, this this idea of being like the childlike mind this led him to sit under that tree and one can only imagine um, the sort of state of uh, perhaps um, 
determination, a fierce determination built upon a sort of desperation that if this wasn't it, then there was no point in living. I mean, he'd, he'd got that far to see that the world was a phantasm, that it wasn't worth investing in it. And so he gets to this point where he has this inkling that maybe he can see a way out of this. And he also recognises that if this isn't the way, he's tried everything, there's nothing else. And it's with that sort of complete determination that he sits under the tree. And uh, as I mentioned last night, this huge amount of doubt arises. You know, it's this lovely question, who are you to sit there under that tree? Who are you, you know? And having, having withstood that doubt, having withstood the arrows and the slings and the molten rocks and, oh my goodness, whatever Mara can throw at you, uh, which all, of course, upon reaching him, turned into flowers, garlands, perfume. <laughs> and that's his mind working with it, you see. Then, suddenly, there comes this uh, liberation. So what is that liberation, you see? What is that, 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 that Nibbanic understanding? That point where the world can no longer make you suffer. The world can no longer be seen as something unsatisfactory. You see? Now, when you say that, you think, oh, well, then the Buddha must have, um, you know, must have become like an internal uh, automaton or a blob. You know, he just sort of sat there feeling nothing, numbed, like the, the world can't touch me. You know, it's like yeah. sort of humorless, monotone voice, you know. I am enlightened. Go away, <laughs> Go away leave me alone. But uh, what we find is that he, he is, in fact, enormously charismatic. Charismatic. And this is, where, uh, this is where we have to understand that our practice is not for ourselves alone. Something happens within our mentality which then, as it were, reaches out, leaps out to all other beings. So his first... His first you know, when he recognizes what he's done when he's thought through it and he realizes that he's reached this, this, this consciousness, this level of, um, of relationship with the world where there is now no more suffering, there's no more unhappiness, there's, there's just perfect contentment. He says, he says, you know, when somebody complains to him and says this, this teaching is very hard, the training is very hard, he says, well, it is, it is, he says, but people do it and they achieve nibbana. And the questioner says, nibbana, so what? You see, what he says... <laughs> He says, when you get there, and these are his words, you are contented and with it happy. So now he's talking about himself. He's contented and with it happy. Now remember this word contentment as opposed to satisfaction. We feel satisfaction when we feed our greens. Yeah? When we, when we uh, you know, have that extra cream cake, we feel satisfied. But because that's coming from the centre, which is dependent on the world for happiness it arises again as a dissatisfaction, as a feeling of lack. And then one has to put one's coat on, hail, rain or shine, seeking for a cream cake. <laughs> it drives you to the nearest tea shop. I know about this. So, but contentment is something else. Contentment is that heart which does not have desire. Desire coming from that wrong place. That desire based on seeking happiness in the world. So <clears throat> this, uh, uh, that understanding uh, which is inside him uh, as to you know, where 
the liberation is, is so... Uh, it takes him, so it says anyway, two or three nights to go through this whole... Pro- and he goes through that wheel of dependent origination that, we, that I chant in the morning. Uh, but then the first thing that comes up, you see, is who, who can I teach this to? Who can, who can I help? So Now, in, in the scriptures, the words he uses, when he says, whatever a teacher can do for his students, I have done for you. Out of compassion. Whatever a teacher can do for students, out of compassion, I don't feel. The word for compassion is anukampa. Right? The word that, you, that some of you might know is karuna, which means compassion. But the word he uses, anukampa, it, move, it means to move towards the other. See, an empathy, a moving towards the other. So he himself now, having released himself from all that unsatisfactoriness, from any, any uh, ability to cause himself any discontent uh, now wants to actually share it and then there comes that doubt which some of you know that um, he wonders whether anybody in the world could understand this sort of subtle teaching and uh, in, the, in the literature which also is remember battling with, um, with Hinduism Sahampati uh, the greatest of the Brahmas uh, comes down and asks him to teach because you know some people have only a little dust in their eyes and the reason it's uh, the, the Brahma is, of course, to, uh, to tell all the other people who believe in Brahma that Brahma is actually below the Buddha. <laughs> but what it, what it tells us is that there's that doubt in his mind as to whether anybody could understand this stuff. But there's no doubt in his mind that he has to try and share it. And, of course, then he goes off. He walks about 150 miles or something, I think it's a bit more than that, from Bodhgaya, where he was enlightened to modern-day Varanasi. So, <clears throat> if, you, um, if you look at most of the mystical traditions, you'll find that as an archetypal, as an archetypal way, this, this uh, awakening to some sort of um, reality about the world which is so contrary to what the world wants you to believe, so contrary to what um, our consumer society wants you to believe. Yeah? Uh, so contrary to the, the culture which, which is driving you to seek happiness in what it can offer. And then there's that, that awakening from it, the feeling that there's, there's something deeply unsatisfactory about it. And then the search begins. Then there's the finding. There's the, the, the search can be disappointing. You can move from here to there until you find the path, you see. And once you've found it, uh, then you, you, you work with it. That's, that's absolutely archetypal. So, for instance, when, so when we uh, take the refuges and precepts, we can take it just at that level of, of the archetype. That's what we're doing. We're taking refuge in that path, which, which, uh, which is common to all spiritual traditions. Hmm? So, um, once, he's, uh, once he's become uh, liberated and he starts teaching, the rest of his life is spent in the service of others. The rest of his life is spent in the service of others. And because he has arrived at that point of contentment, now this is uh, really a crucial point, the point that he arrives at that crucial contentment, there is no more accumulation of happiness for him. When we, if we now begin to practice compassionate acts, we ourselves will grow, <clears throat> the heart will grow, we'll feel more and more this this loveliness within ourselves. <clears throat> but once, once that process of coming to liberation stops, 
There's no more merit to be had. There's the total fullness of that state. So it's only when we get to that point, we could say, that pure acts of compassion can actually be performed. Now that shouldn't make us uh, disappointed by ourselves because we are training. We, we, just, we just do our best. But not to confuse the joys and the, the feelings of goodness and happiness that we feel when we do good with the process of doing, of doing good for others. Hmm? That's our punya, that's our merit. And we should receive it as, we, as you would receive a present. Hmm? And as I mentioned before, if you flip and you start doing it for that reason, then you end up like you know, one of these do-gooders. And the definition of a do-gooder is that they do you the good they want to do you. So, so if somebody, if you happen to be sick and your friend who's a do-gooder comes, they'll knock on the door and they'll say, listen, I, you know, you're very sick, I, I have this amazing chicken soup which, uh, which will revive you. And you say, oh, well, I, frankly, you know, I'm feeling so sick, I really couldn't eat this, you know. But I'll tell you what you could do for me. Could you clean the toilet? then you get this disappearance this act of disappearance (laughs) so you can always test yourself you see whenever you you do good and it's not accepted no thank you whoa you can feel the you know so um, so that's that's the, the Buddha as an archetype, as a, as a paradigm, as an example. And uh, when we take refuge, we're taking refuge in that. Now, of course, for a traditional uh, Buddhist, there is that image of the historical Buddha, you know, of a personage. But in terms of the spiritual life, that historical Buddha only remains as somebody to be honoured as as that ultimate teacher, somebody whom uh, we may feel deep gratitude towards as a human being, you know, somebody who actually helped us make this path. But in terms of the spiritual life, it's the archetype that we're taking refuge in. It's the paradigm. It's the, exa- it's the exemplar. And that's, and that's what we're, we're, we're following. Now, when it comes to the actual teaching itself, you can see that he laid that out in what became formalized as the Four Noble Truths. And uh, what he's saying is that uh, his, fir- his first statement is that there's dukkha. This word dukkha translates as unsatisfactoriness and suffering. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it translates literally, I believe, anyway, as a hard place. Dukkha. It, this is a hard place. <laughs> and he says that the reason why it's a hard place is because of this desire. But remember that this desire is not the desire to escape the hard place. It's not the desire coming from the heart of compassion and love. It's the desire coming from the self. So now what is this self? You know, we talk about the self. I mean, what are we talking about yeah, in Buddhist terms? All we're talking about is a concept. It's a concept, that's all. Now, if you were to take anything in this world, say, uh, say like a, a car or something, we have a concept. We know it's a car. We can see it's a car. There's no problem. If I say to you, that's a car, you understand, that's a car. And we have, as soon as you put that concept on it, there comes a wholeness to it. There comes a sort of integrity, uh, an entity. It becomes a thing. But everybody knows that 
it's made up of pieces and parts and that it sometimes falls apart and that you can take it apart in various ways you can separate it in its pieces you can separate it according to its chemicals you can go down to its subatomic particles so depending on how you view what we call that car it doesn't actually exist as a car at all it's just a convention a physical convention but it's still a convention now when we go into ourselves and we make the same sort of investigation what we find is that this is just a convention it's just a physical psychophysical organism that we happen to be in and we are aliens within this body absolute aliens consider have you any idea now what your liver is doing you haven't a clue <laughs> do you know what it is to be a toenail <coughs> have you any idea what it is to be a hair a, a hair you don't you see you don't know do you <laughs> it's weird isn't it and the brain what the hell is the brain doing I haven't a clue <laughs> what my brain's doing I just hope it's uh, whatever it's doing I hope it's doing it properly and uh, if uh, if you look at me now see look at me now what are you experiencing? Two eyes? Now, if you look at me now, you see my face. Yeah? Where's yours? Where's your face? You don't have one. <laughs> and worse than that, when you look in a mirror, you think that's how you look. But the mirror gives you, a dis- it gives you the other way around. That's why when you use two mirrors, you're shocked. You never knew your nose was that big. <laughs> takes you by surprise so we're living in this sort of make-believe world of thinking that I am this body Hmm? now that is so strong within us you see isn't it that is so strong that we are this body now you know you, you may you may go through these contemplations and think yes oh yes I'm not the body and all that sort of stuff but of course when you get this you know when the body goes wrong when you wake up you know and your heart's beating too fast, you wake up with a pain in the back, you know, then you get that, oh, I'm going to die. <laughs> a, little, a pimple, a pimple can cause us to go into sort of, uh, some sort of huge panic attack, because you've never, you've never had a pimple there before. <laughs> eh? And, you know, any, any closeness to death just throws us into a panic. Now, that panic, that fear of sickness, old age and death, is the measure of the self. If you want to know... You see, the self doesn't exist. It only, it's only a concept. It's only an idea of who I am. And we only know who I am. Uh, who, uh, should we say, we only know the attachment to that little concept that we have of who I am when this I becomes endangered. So uh, this, whole, this, this whole idea of... The whole idea of self. So when the Buddha's teaching... So he, he talks about, remember, these three characteristics, that things arise and pass away, you know, that there is this uh, unsatisfactoriness if you form any relationship of ownership uh, or identity with the world, and there is this not-self, right? this anatta. Now, um, uh, in, those, in, in, in his day, there was the, uh, the Brahminical line, Hinduism, remember, is a word that was put on it later, but the Brahmins coming through the Rig Veda and then through the Upanishads were also changing their definition of this word Atta. And, of course, they ended up talking about something which was outside the body-mind-heart complex, 
and they called it Atta. The Buddha didn't go that way. He tended to always talk in the negative because as soon as you talk in the positive, the concept arises. So if you're told that there is a spirit, that's very comforting, isn't it? I, I am a spirit. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Makes you feel very, you know, then you say, what is it? Ah, well, you know, I'm coming to that. <laughs> so this idea of a spirit, of, some, of something which floats around untouched by the world, you see, your mind will grasp it. And, right? But the Buddha wouldn't, he wouldn't go that way. He, he always talked about this not-self. So what he's saying is that, and this is where we now come to his practice, that if you want to know what we really are, we must, be very, we must be very clear as to what we are not. So his whole teaching is looking at what we're experiencing and saying, this is not me, it's not mine. First of all, it arises and passes away, so it has no steadiness, it has no ability to... As soon as you try and grasp it, it's moved. So it can't be me, it can't be mine. Or else I would own it. One of the definitions of me, of a self, is control. And if I can't control something, well, how can it be me? Yeah? And then when we get into that desire and the emotional states and recognizing that they arise even when I don't want them to arise and they don't pass away even though I tell them to pass away. Hmm? When we get into that, then we realize everything that I'm experiencing here, everything is not me, is not mine. My eyeballs aren't me, they're not mine. What I'm seeing is not me, not mine. What I hear is not me, what I feel is not me, not mine. And that distancing, that, that in our meditation, when we begin to distance from this, it's like you're walking backwards towards a cliff. Because you haven't a clue what happens when all that disappears. Right? All you've got is this historical person saying, listen, <laughs> it's okay. When you, when you nip over that cliff, everything's all right, you see? Now that's where, that's where this faith that we were talking about last night comes in. There has to be that trust. And that trust won't come, it doesn't come uh, to most people just like that. It comes in little stages. Because as you move backwards, of course, you realise that as you let go, actually you don't lose anything. You don't lose anything at all. So as you, for instance, let go of your attachment to things what is actually destroyed are all those negative states caused by attachment. So all the hatred disappears, but that energy, that form, is not lost, it's transformed. Whatever was hatred becomes love. Whatever is cruelty becomes compassion. And so what you begin to recognize is that the more you let go, actually the more you receive. Hmm? And that business of letting go, which is the business of seeing not me, not mine, right, is the process of liberation. That is the process of liberation. With this word letting go, be careful with that, because it's very, you know, you'll hear it in a lot of Buddhist circles, well, other circles too, let go, let go. It's not you letting go. If you let go, you're just getting rid of it. It's allowing something to arise and pass away in its own time. Yeah? So if you say, if something comes up, for instance, say some nasty stuff comes up, and you go, let go, let go, get off, let go. See? <laughs> then all you're doing is suppressing it, you're pushing it away. Let go means allow it to arise and pass away. Right? So be careful of that, because the English is confusing. So uh, the teaching around not-self, which uh, is all to do with recognizing that our control 
over life, over the body, over my thoughts, over my emotions, is, uh, is, is very surface. Now, the interesting thing is that when the self disappears, there comes that control over the, over the mind and the heart. Not over the body, the body is something else, eh? So there was one very famous writer, he's uh, you know, considered to be uh, fully liberated, a man called uh, Mahabua, who lives in North Thailand. He's very old. He's, he's one of the last of a few that were considered to be liberated. And he talks about, at one time, he was the slave of the five candles, but now he's their master. The five candles are your body, heart, thoughts, everything that you experience as a human being. So as we, as, we be, as we practice, as we um, begin to liberate ourselves from a wrong understanding, a wrong relationship with things, then paradoxically we find ourselves more in control of our own mind and hearts. So that's the sort of Dharma that we're taking refuge in. So the Buddha is within us as an archetype, as an exemplar. The Dharma is that teaching of letting go of the world and recognizing that that's not a negative thing. That is, again, to receive the world in a positive way. So the Buddha, having rejected the world, becomes liberated, re-enters the world, re-enters the world as a fully compassionate being. Yeah? And that's our path. Now, we don't have to wait till we're fully liberated to help somebody. That passage is, 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 is a continuous round. So you come to meditation, you liberate yourself a little bit, and then you go out and you do a bit. And then, and then you find another meditation. And so it, it goes, it begins to spiral. See? So the one helps the other. Don't forget that uh, the growth of virtue is concurrent with the growth of wisdom. That's why in the Eightfold Path, you see, although it's put as you know, something that, f- that follows through, right understanding to right attitude. Once you've got the right attitude, it affects the way you speak, it affects the way you uh, act, right action, and it, it affects your livelihood. You know, so last night I was talking about cherry cakes, you see. If I, if I had come across the <laughs> cherries on top of cakes, if I had come across the Dharma before, you see, that would have been a very, very important exercise in my life. Blame my parents. So, so uh, that's the Dharma, you see. That's the Dharma. When it comes to taking refuge in the Sangha, that really is just an extension of these two. Because after the Buddha, and even today, uh, you, we meet people who tell us that this path works. So they're the, ex- they're the, the living exemplars, all the ones who came after the Buddha, all the disciples all those men and women who wrote those lovely little poems expressing their liberation. And even today there are people who will, will tell you that you know, they, they're benefiting from the, from the path. So in a sense we're, we're taking refuge in them. That refuge, remember, is putting trust. So faith, trust, confidence. And uh, by having these three, um, these three factors to our spiritual life, the archetype, the exemplar, the teachings and people around us who are supporting that view, um, then you know the path is the path does have that that underbelly of support. You see.
Now, um, in terms of... Oh, by the way, when, when you take uh, refuge in the Sangha, because some of you might know that the word Sangha is often in, in, uh, traditionally reserved for the monastic Sangha. But that's not how the Buddha used it. The word Sangha just meant the, folk, the, 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 the community. But it's become slightly corrupted that way. But when you're taking refuge in the Sangha, you're not taking refuges in monks and nuns. So feel relieved by that. <laughs> so it, it, is, it is these beings who have said that the path has worked for them. So they are witnesses. So you're, you're taking, you're putting confidence in witnesses. So now, uh, tomorrow, as you know, I, I'm going to do this little ceremony, and it's completely up to you uh, whether you want to do it or not do it. But um, uh, the important thing is to understand what a process of, of uh, ceremony is. So remember that with, a, with all these times in our mm-hmm. lives, um, there's a point when you want to crystallize. You want to crystallize your practice. You want to crystallize, shall we say, um, a relationship. So you go through some sort of ceremony, a marriage ceremony or a partnership ceremony. You want to crystallize it. You want to make it clear. You want to make that a point in time where, as it were, you start again with that renewed energy of commitment. And that's the point of taking refuge. Traditionally, uh, you know, people take refuge every month. They, they go along to the monastery um, and they take refuge every full moon day. Some do it every uh, quarter moon. You see, so it's not as though you do it once and that's the end of it. This is a continuous process, a continuous process. And um, it, um, I, I was talking about, about uh, you know, uh, faith which comes very quickly to somebody, faith which it just grabs you for some reason and without even a thought you commit yourself to the path, you know, which is pretty sort of rare. But here's, a, here's, a, here's somebody called Janusoni who is uh, a Brahmin and he's been talking to the Buddha about fear. And the Buddha has been explaining that um, when he was training in the forests, in the jungles, fear would arise while he was doing walking meditation, for instance, but he kept doing his walking meditation. And, and, and the whole uh, discourse is about fear and how to overcome fear. Now, this strikes Janusoni with, um, with such, with such a force that um, this is what he says. Unfortunately, this is a formula that comes <laughs> all the way through the scriptures, so you read it over and over again. Excellent, good Gautama. Excellent, good Gautama. It is as if one might set upright what had been upset, or might disclose what was covered, or show the way to one who has gone astray, or bring an oil lamp into the darkness so that those with vision might see material shapes. Even so, in many a figure has the Dharma been made clear by you, Lord Gautama, Reverend Gautama. Thus, I am going to the Reverend Gautama for refuge, the Dharma to the Sangha. May the blessed Gautama accept me as a lay follower going for refuge from this day forth as long as life exists. Now, when you take refuge, in this case, uh, he was so uh, moved by it that he took it for life. But that's not necessary. Um, you can take refuge for any length of time. You can take it for a week and see how it feels. It's for you, it's for you to determine how long you want to take this refuge, you see, because it's, it's your spiritual path. In my own, in, when, in my own case, when, when you join the monastic order, it's exactly the same. 
right? Except that you're joining, should we say, an obvious institution. Um, there's no time put on the ordination ceremony. You go through this ordination ceremony and it's basically asking you, will you keep the rules? <laughs> That's all. And it's got certain questions like, you know, are you still in government service? Are you in debt? Um, has your mother and father agreed? Right? You've got to have your parental agreement, even if you're 50. And <laughs> so it's, it's all those little questions and then will you keep the rule? But there's no question about how long you're going to be. So that means that when you join the order, every day you can leave. You can leave by simply saying to somebody three times, somebody who understands, that you're no longer a monk or no longer a nun. That's it. And, you know, if you think, oh, you've made a mistake there, you want to go back, all you've got to do is find an abbot or an abbess who will get you back in the order. It's very fluid like that. But now what it means is that because you've not set a time, every day you have to reaffirm your commitment to the life. You see? So in, in cases like, you know, in, even in cases like uh, partnerships and marriages, you go through this big ceremony and, and that's it. You think you've made it. And you never keep renewing those vows. You never keep renewing that relationship. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that it sort of, uh, you know, unwittingly sort of fades away. So when it comes to taking refuges, you yourself can set a time and just see how it feels to take that sort of commitment. You see? A month, a year, whatever, whatever you feel uh, you, you, you can do. And your understanding of what you're taking refuge in is completely up to you. There's no, um, no, there's nothing, there's no uh, big uh, book which says this is what you're taking refuge in. What you're taking refuge in, actually, is your understanding of the Buddha Dharma Sangha. That's what you're taking refuge in. You're not taking refuge in my understanding of the Buddha Dharma Sangha. It's your, this is your life, your spiritual life, and it's, it's for the individual to say to themselves, right, you know, this is where I'm at. I want to crystallize that event. You know, I, I want to sort of have an occasion where I commit myself to my own understandings. Huh? Now remember that the path is an exploration, so the understandings grow. And as you grow, it may be that at some point you come to the same point as Janusoni here, where in fact you feel that this is it for your life, this is your path that you're going to follow as long as you live. Hmm? Um, even, like for instance, even my own relationship to the monastic order, see there's always that caveat. If people say, are you going to, are you going to continue being a monk? And I say, well, as long as it works. Even I've got a little clause. If it stops working, I'm not going to hang about, you know. <laughs> Take my pension and go off to Spain. <laughs> so it's a case of, of recognising that, you know, it's got to work. It's got to work for us. Hmm? And that's what we're doing when we uh, undergo a little ceremony like this. It just helps us to crystallise our position and move from there. Now, if that's to do with the refuges, taking the refuges, uh, there's also the precepts. And this again goes back to this crucial understanding that wisdom and virtue run together. You can't separate the two. And at least what we can do is undertake the training of not doing harm. If we say to ourselves, well, I'll undertake the training of becoming uh, the most compassionate person in the world. Well, that's very difficult. But, 
But at least you can say, well, from this moment on, my attention will be on actually not doing any harm. I mean, that's good enough. Huh? I'm not doing any harm in the world. So the first one that we take is not to harm any living beings. Now, you have to be careful taking that precept, you know, don't turn it into... It's actually, I'm, I'm using the word precept, but the C. Carpenter means uh, tr- uh, a training rule. It's a training rule, right? There's nothing hard about it, you see? So, for instance, uh, it was here, here, it happened that guy, actually. It was before I came here, where there was a plague of rats. And, uh, you know, there were all these people saying, oh, can't hurt rats, you can't kill, <laughs> can't kill rats. But then eventually, you know, common sense has to come. Rats have a place, and human beings have a place. And uh, if you don't be careful, rats can endanger human beings. So at some point, poison was put down to destroy the rats. Now you might think, well, that's a terrible thing. But that's up to you to decide what you're going to do about the rat that lives in your, in your front room. When I was in Burma, there was never any worries about fumigating the monastery of mosquitoes. So this business about doing harm is, you have to be careful, it's something to do with our attitude towards other beings. Right? So if your attitude is coming from the heart of cruelty, from the heart of hate, then of course that's going to do you harm. Huh? But if, it's, if there's another reason for uh, having to destroy another life for compassionate reasons, then uh, you know, it, that, that rule doesn't undermine that sort of situation. If you, if you make these rules too hard, then what we do is we try to impose upon this relative world an absolute law. And it doesn't work like that. That's the end of it. Hmm? The next one, so again, with these training rules, it's your understanding that you're actually taking refuge in. You see? Remember, yesterday I quoted the Buddha in his discourse to the Kalamas, you know? It's your understanding. What do you understand by it? You know, and stand by your own understanding. If you find that your understanding leads you into, uh, you know, uh, leads you into a pit, leads you into a, leads you into a, a cul-de-sac, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong. So you have to pull back from your own understanding, and that's where you have to consult uh, the scriptures, consult uh, people whom you consider to be wiser than yourself. Hmm? So remember, uh, not to be, shall we say. Um, too certain about our own understandings. Yeah, to always have that little question mark in the mind which says, you know, well, maybe, you know, do I re- do, have I really understood this? Hmm? The next one is not to take what is not freely given. So that's usually pretty straightforward, yeah? And it's up to, it's up to an individual as to how they interpret that, you know? Um, copying CDs. It can, get, it can get awfully painful. So you, have to, you yourself have to decide where you are on, on this business of taking what is not freely given. When it comes to kame sumichachara, that's normally translated as not to misuse our sexual powers. Um, uh, you can take it as a wider thing of simply not to misuse our, our appetites. So it also includes overeating and oversleeping and all that. And it's up to us to decide, um, you know, what we want to use our or how we want to use our sexual energy so a lot of this stuff is also a little bit of personal experimentation Hmm? 
Then there's the rule about wrong speech. So the, the four wrong speech, uh, you know, not to tell whoppers, that's pretty straightforward, slander, um, coarse speech, and uh, uh, just useless speech. And that's the one that is most difficult. Just talking for talking's sake. <laughs> just filling time. Yabba, dabba, dabba, dabba. So it's a case of, of, of seeing that and, 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 and sort of, you know, trying to use it as a... As a as, as touch points, as you know, being able to look at our own behaviour from these particular training rules. See, when it comes to taking what is not uh, intoxicating, you know, apart from medicinal stuff, um, it's up to us to decide where we want to draw the line on that. Some people are very are very clear; they don't want to go anywhere near wine or beer or anything like that. <clears throat> Some people draw it even to the point of cof- coffee and and um, and tea. Other people uh, are more easy with it. You know, lots of coffee and tea, and if the occasion uh, demands, a glass of wine or two. So, <laughs> so it's up to you. In the Chinese tradition, uh, when they take refuge, they don't take refuge in the precept they know they can't keep. <laughs> so, so they don't take the last one normally. So it's okay. <laughs> now, there's no need to do that because we ourselves can decide at what level we want to actually keep these rules. Hmm? Gee, time, time goes on. So, um, tomorrow, <clears throat> tomorrow evening at uh, this time, uh, it'd be more like a question than answers. So if there's any confusions, anything that you want cleared up around this particular problem, those are the answers. Uh, those are the questions I'll answer first. And then, if there's time, I'll answer the rest that are on those sheets. And then uh, in the evening, uh, we'll just do this little ceremony. And it's up to you uh, to join at your own level of understanding. And the ceremony is taking these refuges and precepts. And then... Uh, I'll explain it again, you know, when we do it, we share our merit. And that's, that's really important for us to understand that we're not just doing it for ourselves. We're doing it also for the benefit of other people. And the sharing of merit uh, is really part and parcel of that, of that ceremony. But I'll go into detail of that tomorrow. So I think, um, I think that's about it. So if we just sit here uh, silently for a little while, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.